0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. And here's part two of the Weingart Himmel sessions on fluid management in sepsis and post-intubation sedation and analgesia. We're going to get back to the same case that we outlined in the first part of this episode. A 72-year-old man with a history of CHF, diabetes, and hypertension was wheeled into our resuscitation room with a four-day history of worsening shortness of breath, cough productive of green sputum, and a high fever. His wife called 911 as he was getting increasingly confused and having a lot of difficulty breathing. On arrival, he appeared to be in moderate to severe respiratory distress, adding 86% on a non-rebreather. His heart rate was 130, blood pressure 95 on 40. Respiratory rate of 32 and a temp of 38.2. Well, based on our last episode, we knew to do a delayed sequence intubation on this patient and we saved his life. But now we have to decide about post-intubation analgesia and fluid resuscitation. We're going to start with fluid resuscitation. There's been some controversy and some important trials published lately on fluid management and sepsis, which have left a few questions in my mind that I'd like to put out here now. The first one is, which fluid is the fluid of choice? Normal saline, ringer's lactate, albumin, does it even matter? Next, how much fluid should we be giving? Two liters in the first two hours, six liters in the first 24 hours, 14 liters in the first 24 hours? How fast should we be running the fluids? Should it be as fast as possible? How do we get the fluids in? What kind of venous access should we have? How many lines? What kind of lines? What should our clinical goals be? In other words, at what point should we stop giving fluids? Should we be concerned about giving too much fluid? What are the best measures we can use to assess fluid status? And finally, when should we be starting pressors? So let's hear what Dr. Weingart and Dr. Himmel have to say about fluid management in severe sepsis and septic shock. Dr. Himmel, let's
1: go through all these questions one by one. Which fluid is the best fluid of choice? You've basically got three choices. Albumin, normal saline, Ringer's lactate, which is sort of a pseudo-balanced solution. And you've got the more balanced solution something like Plasmalite, which we don't produce in Canada very much. You know, the truth of it is they're all fine. But let's be practical. Most emergency departments are going to use normal saline for the first and second and probably third liter. Now, every surgeon is going to tell you hyperchloremic, acidosis, renal injury, and so forth. That may be true after 10 liters of normal saline, but the first or second or third liter normal saline is fine. If you absolutely have to use Ringer's lactate, no problem. If you want to use plasmolite, no problem. In the North American context, albumin, 5%, 20% really isn't used. I think it's used more uh, down south, down under, so to speak, but I don't think it's really applicable, at least in the Canadian context. But the fluid is not plasma, and it's not blood. So I would say saline's fine, Ringer's lactate's fine, and I think plasma light is fine. But basically, the first couple liters are going to be normal saline in our context.
0: So, would you suggest after your first few liters of normal saline, then transferring over to Ringer's, just to avoid that? potential for the hyperchloremic? Uh, I've got no
1: clear evidence on that. I'd love to hear what Scott
2: thinks. I wouldn't stress too much in the ED about balanced solutions versus not balanced for your initial fluid resuscitation. And saline is fine. Ringers is fine for all but a handful of patient categories. So absolutely, just use what you're most comfortable with. Now we are and we're going to talk about I think Anton moving towards giving less fluid overall in these massive resuscitations and in the old days when we used to give 14 16 liters then it really mattered which one you chose now in the current day when we may be giving 4 maybe 5 liters I agree with Walter I don't think it matters so much as long as you're using a crystalloid I don't think there's much role for colloid in the ED management of these patients
0: Yeah that's a, that's a great point I mean times have changed I think this was really only an issue when we were giving massive amounts of
1: fluid Yeah there have been two big studies looking at colloids versus crystalloids, your albumin, 5% and 20%. There's zero advantage, except in a couple of weird situations not even worth mentioning. So saline's fine, ringer's lactate's fine. I prefer saline, just a matter of experience. If I've got a surgeon nearby or intensivist who insists on ringer's lactate, it's not worth the fight. I'll go, no problem. So in terms of which type of fluid you want to start your
0: resuscitation with, it doesn't really matter. You can start with normal saline or ringer's lactate or plasma light. If you're going to use normal saline, after the first three or four liters, you might want to consider changing over to ringers or to plasmolyte to avoid hyperchloremic acidosis. That being said, it's seldom that we'll give more than four or five liters in these patients for reasons that Dr. Weingart and Dr. Himmel will soon explain. We were alluding to the Amount of fluid. That's the next question. How much fluid should we be giving? Should we be giving two liters in the first hour? Should we be getting 15 lines in and driving them as fast as we can? How much? All but the Australian folks agree
2: that you probably should give every one of these severely septic patients two liters or 30 mLs per kg, somewhere in that range to everyone as your starting point. They would say give one liter and uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. Past that I think you should give in the optimal situation whatever additional fluid the patient needs. In a lot of EDs, that's going to be difficult to discern. It's going to require advanced hemodynamic monitors or a savviness with ultrasound that may or may not be present. I think if you just had to go empiric, three, maybe four liters is where you should be shooting for in the first six hours of the management of a septic patient. We have large randomized trials to back that up now. Both process and arise had fluid requirements for the severely septic patients right in that range, the three to four liter mark.
0: Yeah, so if there is a magic number, three to four liters in the first six hours. It'll get you most of the way there for most
2: patients. And I think you'd do very well by your patients if you had to make a standardized strategy
1: just using that one. You have to remember, we are not talking about ordinary sepsis, which means SIRS plus the presumed infection. We're talking about septic shock right? So if your patient got septic shock, three or four liters is perfectly reasonable. Although Manny, in his original trials of 2001, I believe, was giving about five to five and a half liters in the first six hours. I would say I get my two liters in hopefully in the
2: first half hour because I want to see the results of that. And the actual entrance into severe sepsis criteria is predicated on those initial two liters. And as a result, uh, you can be in a circumstance where you have a patient who is initially hypotensive, their lactate is not greater than four, and you say, well, I'm not gonna treat them as really sick until I have my 20 mLs per kg. And if you let that take two hours, I don't think that's very good for that patient. I want to know, am I putting them in the box of severe sepsis or not as soon as possible? So we put those first two liters under pressure bag and get them in and then reassess the hemodynamics of that patient. If they're now normotensive, okay, they're going to get admitted, but I'm not going to go full court press on them. I'm going to watch them. I'm going to reassess. But if they're still hypotensive, they are now severely septic, and there's a whole bunch of things that now happen to this patient.
0: So let's just talk practically how to get two liters in in the first 30 minutes So, Dr. Weingart, tell us how you do that in your fancy shop, and then, Dr. Himmel, you can tell us how we should be doing it in the community. Even
2: the smallest community ED needs to have pressure infusion bags, and they're cheap, and a lot of them are disposable, though you can reuse them if you can't afford to buy the ones and throw them away. but They are just essentially a blood pressure cuff that wraps around the fluid bag and puts them under 300 millimeters of mercury of pressure, and they will get those fluids in very reasonably, even in a smaller size IV. Even if all you have is a 20-gauge, you could
1: still get two liters in in 30 minutes if they are put in under pressure. If you order two IVs, and these patients need at least two IVs wide open, they're going to get a liter per hour in the first IV and a liter per hour in the second IV, they're going to get two liters over an hour. So even
0: without a pressure bag, if you have two lines... Well, because a nurse
1: is going to turn the machine up to 999 and 999. So they're going to get just under two liters in the first hour. Ask us the following question, is this patient sick? Are they septic? Do they have septic shock? Are they not perfusing? Do they look cold? Do they look crummy? Better still, do they have occult shock? Is their lactate elevated? Do they look unwell? If you think you're dealing with occult shock or shock, it's two liters as fast as possible. And that needs blood pressure cuffs on the IV. You're not gonna get it by going 999 on two IVs. Totally agree. You guys are being so difficult. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought we'd have
1: some fighting going on. It's just, uh, no, we I agree. Guess, we agree to everything. <laughs> I, guess,
0: I guess when you have two guys that are that smart, then there is some intersection of- Scott's my spiritual that <laughs> leader. <laughs> So just a quick review here in terms of how much fluid, how fast, pretty much all severe septic patients should get three to four liters in the first six hours based on two recent large trials, the process and arise trials, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Dr. Weingart suggests two liters in the first 30 minutes or 30 milliliters per kg for the really sick patients via large peripheral IVs under pressure bags. You won't be able to get two liters in over 30 minutes with the order two large-bore IVs full open without these pressure bags. Next, we're going to talk about venous access, IOs, and central lines in the patient with severe sepsis and septic shock. So, of course, not every patient is the same. Some patients are really, really, really sick, and some people are, like Dr. Himmel explained, occult septic shock. So there's a huge range in there, and we're going to need different lines for different patients. So for the patients with occult septic shock, two peripheral lines might be adequate. Dr. Himmel, in which kinds of patients should we be doing more invasive venous access? And what do you suggest to our listeners for how we should obtain that venous access in the really sick septic
1: shock patient? At the present time, the purpose of central lines basically is to give catecholamines. If you've got two good peripheral IVs, three be even nicer, you're gonna be able to give lots of fluid. You're gonna be able to give three liters an hour. So that's more than adequate. So I would say based on the more recent trials, since the actual measurement of central venous pressure is being de-emphasized, since the measurement of central venous oxygen is being de-emphasized, a central line serves one primary purpose right now, is to safely give norepinephrine or perhaps dobutamine if you're ever gonna use that particular drug. So when you're at the point where you think it's appropriate to give catecholamines, you certainly want to be thinking at that point of getting central lines in. That's not to say you're unable to give catecholamines a peripheral line for a period of time. So let's imagine the most unpleasant situation where you've got a patient who's in shock and they cannot start a peripheral line and they're about to die. You only have two options right now. Start a central line or use an interosseous line and they're both acceptable. If you're able to effectively get a central line, you're skilled at it, you're confident you can do it quickly, go for it. On the other hand, if you think you can't get that done in a matter of minutes, go for the interosseous. Through a lower extremity, you can get a liter per hour in, no problem. However, you have to remember in adults, if you want to give high flow IV fluids, the humerus is the way to go. The humerus is able to provide way more fluid than the tibia. And you can usually get IO in in a matter of five to eight seconds. Totally agree. IO is the way to go to temporize. What I don't like
2: seeing is ED docs decide, well, I'll just leave that IO in and I don't ever have to put the central line in. Even after the patient's stabilized, even after you got some fluid in, the patient's blood pressure is better, and now they're getting norepinephrine through that IO, I would prefer at that point to see most ED docs place a central line and not rely on that IO as the patient's only point of access. Now, if you have an ICU doctor that's going to take this patient off your hands and there's going to be a clear transfer of responsibility to them putting the central line in as soon as they get upstairs? Okay. But otherwise, you might want to ensure reliable access
1: that's going to last the patient through the next few hours. I couldn't agree more, Scott. So to save a life in dire situation, the IO. To continue treatment, central line or intravenous access or both. Boom. Okay,
0: so if you need to temporize a crashing patient who you can't get peripheral IVs on within one or two minutes, use two IOs in each proximal humerus and two IOs in each proximal tibia if you need. Once your patient is stabilized, then get a central line in. If the patient's not crashing in front of you, use two or three peripheral lines for fluids and a central line if you anticipate the need for pressors, which you'll probably need to decide on after those first two liters of normal saline or Ringers. And should probably have the pressures going by the time the third leader is running rather than waiting until it's too late. Okay, so we've talked about how much fluid, how fast, how we're going to get it in. Now, the next question is, when do we stop? What should our clinical goals be? Is there such thing as giving too much fluid in the septic shock patient? How do we measure these patients' fluid status? What can guide us in terms of ongoing management for fluids? It's a tough call. The hardest question to answer in critical
2: care is, will my patient benefit from more fluid? It is still the toughest question out there. It's what I asked myself when I was uh, in the ICU, and it's what I continue to ask myself now. An easy answer, an answer your listeners may want to just use, is after three to four liters of fluid, if the patient's still hypotensive, put them on pressors, and don't worry about the fluids until they get up to the ICU. And that would be a 100% reasonable way to go, And some would argue a better way to go than messing around with figuring out if the patient needs additional
0: fluid or not. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. So, in terms of when to stop the fluids, if you want to keep it real simple, Weingart says it's okay if you just give your three or four liters. And if the blood pressure is still low, if they still have a MAP below 65, add pressors and maybe a bit of fluid or even no fluid until the patient gets to the ICU. And that's all you need to do. Dr. Himmel is now going to explain a more nuanced approach to assessing fluid status to see if your patient needs more fluid or not. So Dr. Himmel, there's several ways of assessing fluid status at the bedside. We look at the JVP, we look at the blood pressure, urine output. We might get the ultrasound out and look at the IVC. Can you just go through for us at the bedside what you do when you have a patient in front of you who has severe sepsis, you've given them fluid and you're trying to assess when to stop giving them fluid or when to turn it down?
1: Let's get super practical. I think you've got three options. Number one, how is the patient looking? What are the clinical parameters? The kind of stuff I used to do 40 years ago, and it's all really important. The next question i to ask is, what's the patient's fluid tolerance? Now, this is a new concept. And here's what it means. Can I give this patient another 500 cc's or a liter of fluid safely? What's your fluid tolerance? And the last question is, and this is a really subtle and new concept for me, what's their fluid responsiveness? If I give this patient 500 cc's of fluid, is their stroke volume going to go up? So here's your three questions you got to go through in your brain. Clinical factors, the fluid tolerance, and the fluid responsiveness. So let's start off, Dr. Himmel, with the clinical factors. What are they? First of all, clinical factors are absolutely important. How does the patient look? Is the person alert? Is their skin mottled? Are they pale or cyanotic? Are they sweaty or dry? What's their heart rate? What's their blood pressure? And of course, what is their renal output? Why do these things count? Well, what's sepsis all about? Sepsis is about organ dysfunction. And when you do a clinical assessment, you can do a great job at assessing organ dysfunction. And of course, in the good old days, we looked at jugular venous pressure. And frankly, I still do. I love it. I'm the first to admit, each of these things on their own are of limited value. But taken all together, they produce a very valuable piece of information that can guide you. So let's talk a little bit more about blood pressure, about what map you're
0: going for. So in the 2012 guidelines, they said that we should be shooting for a MAP of
1: 65. 65 is just fine. But 65 doesn't mean 55. 65 means 60 to 65. But certainly, absolutely, we know now, you don't need a MAP of 70, you don't need a MAP of 75, and you don't need a MAP of 80. And for those of us who aren't looking at MAP
0: very often and go more based on the systolic and diastolic blood pressure... Could you just give us some
1: rough idea of what a map of 65 is versus a map of 80? Okay, we want a map of around 65. Now, what does that really mean? Well, by and large, your monitor is going to tell you. But we're talking a pressure of about 90 over 55. So just think about it. A pressure of 90 over 55 is a map of 65. Do you require a pressure of 100 over 70 or 100 over 80? No, you don't. That's a map way over 65. So MAP65, your pressure's got to be at least 90 over 55 or so, and that's absolutely acceptable, but no lower. Now, How about the good old ultrasound we're all learning about these days? Well, this is all about fluid tolerance. Now, we know that CVP does not really tell you much about fluid responsiveness, But you need some concept of how much fluid you can actually give. And we have an easy way of figuring out right now without measuring the central venous pressure. Using your ultrasound machine, measure the width of your inferior vena cava. And if it's collapsing by 50%, that person is going to be able to tolerate more fluid by and large. If you've got the skill, measure the distension of the internal jugular vein. If your internal jugular vein is completely collapsed, you can tolerate fluid. On the other hand, if your IJ is up to the angle of your jaw, you probably cannot tolerate much more fluid. And you might be better off looking at giving ketocolamines rather than fluid. So those two measurements, the size of your inferior vena cava and collapsibility, and the jugular venous pressure, which is easily measured by the use of ultrasound machine, those two figures are gonna give you a sense of how much fluid you can give and still have fluid tolerance. Now, it's not perfect, but it's extremely helpful taking in context of all the other clinical features we've spoken about.
2: If you have any sadness with ultrasound, you can look at the IVC and get an idea of how pump it is. It's not perfect. It's not perfectly sensitive or specific. It just gives you an idea. And if you look at the heart as well and see what it's doing, and you take a look at the lungs, if you're able to, and see if there's fluid in the lungs, with those three pieces of information, you can make a gestalt judgment
0: about the patient's fluid status. So we've talked about clinical assessment and fluid tolerance.
1: What about fluid responsiveness? Can you tell us a bit about that? If I give my patient 250 cc's of fluid or 500 cc's of fluid, is the stroke volume going to go up? That's the fundamental question, and this is tough. The technology is here. There are pretty reasonable devices available where you can measure stroke volume. Frankly, I don't use them. And certainly, you can do the old leg lift test where you lift up someone's legs 45 degrees and check what their blood pressure is. And if it goes up by 5 or 10 millimeters of mercury, that certainly confirms some fluid responsiveness. That's a fairly good test. So here's Dr. Weingart's
0: take on the
1: passive leg raise test
0: to assess fluid tolerance in the septic patient. You have a patient sitting up in
2: bed at a 45-degree angle. You take a look at their blood pressure, and then you lie them flat and raise their legs up to a 45-degree angle. And if there's an augmentation in their blood pressure, then they probably will benefit from fluid. And it's remarkably enjoyable to demonstrate once to a medical student to prove physiology in action. And it becomes very tedious when you have to come
1: back to the bedside and do it every 15 minutes. What else can you do? You can measure the patient's end tidal CO2. If a patient is shocky and you've been giving them lots of fluid, three or four liters, and now they're getting inotropes, and your question is, should I give more fluid? Here's one thing that you can start to think about. Give them 500 cc's of fluid, even 250, and look at their end tidal CO2. If their end tidal CO2 goes up 5-10 of water, that's called fluid responsiveness. That's a beautiful measurement of telling you give more fluid. I don't think I personally am really there yet. Now, Scott definitely is, but I'm not there yet. So I basically rely on the ultrasound machine and clinical factors. But I think a couple years from now, we're going to be looking at, I will be looking at a lot more use of stroke volume, as well as end tidal CO2 and pulse pressure variability. But at the moment, I'm not using it, but certainly many of my colleagues' states are using it at this very moment and using it very well. And I admire them. So in terms of assessing
0: whether a patient needs more fluid or not, you can keep it real simple. Like Dr. Weingart said at the beginning, give three or four liters. If the MAP is still below 65, start norepinephrine and get them to the ICU. If you do find yourself in a situation where you need to assess the fluid status and see if the patient needs more fluid or not, You want to assess the clinical factors, and then you want to assess fluid tolerance and fluid responsiveness. In terms of assessing fluid tolerance, the best thing to do is use your ultrasound machine. Assess the IVC to determine whether there's 50% collapse or not. And although that doesn't have the greatest sensitivity and specificity, that'll give you a general idea. You can use your ultrasound as well to check the JVD, as well as the heart, and whether there's fluid in the lungs. In terms of fluid responsiveness, you can try the passive leg raise, although both Dr. Weingart and Dr. Himmel say that it's not that useful on a practical level because it's very laborious to do over and over. The other thing to check for fluid responsiveness is end title CO2, which most of us in a community ED actually have access to. There's all kinds of fancy gadgets that can check stroke volume, skin detectors that Dr. Weingart might have at his shop, but they're very expensive and aren't available at most community EDs. Next, Dr. Weingart's going to go back to keeping it simple, just giving three or four liters, and then starting norepinephrine and explain why this might be a good approach. So clinical assessment, JVD, with or without ultrasound, and then you use your ultrasound to assess IVC and the heart. You could, or you could just give
2: three or four liters. And the reason I say that is not because you're failing the patient by doing that. It's because there's a new concept about the way we use catechols that has changed my entire vision and how I talk about this stuff in terms of fluid management in the ED
0: for these severe septic patients. I'm at the edge of my seat, Dr. Weingart. What is it?
2: Well, we always thought about drugs like norepinephrine as being just afterload reducers, just squeezing on the vasculature. And the idea was, if you didn't fill these patients with fluid, you could squeeze them all you want and the number would look good on the blood pressure monitor and you'd feel better and the patient would die because they wouldn't be perfusing their end organs. But what we've discovered, and we've suspected it for a while, and now the trials came out in the past two years, low doses of vasopressors, their initial action is to squeeze the venous side, to actually change an unstressed volume to a stress volume, meaning you're recruiting all this fluid that's just sitting there in their venous capacitance vessels and bringing it into the bloodstream. Now, when you think that through, what that means is after you give those three liters of fluid, if you put them on a low dose of norepinephrine, you're giving additional fluid, but you're not doing it externally. You're recruiting the patient's own internal stores of fluid that have left their bloodstream due to the cytokines and now you're bringing it back into the bloodstream. And as a result, you augment preload, you augment cardiac output while maintaining perfusion to the end organs. So I think any patient after three to four liters should be on a vasopressor. And my Australian friends think after three to four liters, you should only be on a vasopressor with no additional fluid given in the ED.
1: Yeah, this was a real new way of thinking for me. Years ago, I used to think that the purpose of adrenaline and noradrenaline was to squeeze the arteries and raise your pressure. But think about it. When you increase the afterload, you could actually be decreasing cardiac output. As the resistance goes up, you may be impairing cardiac output. So the purpose of vasopressors clearly now is to decrease venous capacitance so you don't waste all your fluid. Now, of course, we're talking about starting with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight mics per minute, not 30 mics per minute of norepinephrine. So
0: practicalities, two liters in the first 30 minutes, you're going to be going to three or four liters within the first two hours. Once you're at about three or four liters and the pressure is not above about 65 map, and we'll talk about that number, then you want to go to norepinephrine, the vasopressor of choice you'll then do what with the fluids? Zero fluids, 200 cc's an hour? We stop all regular infusions
2: of fluids on these patients and pretty much every critically ill patient. And we look at them, we use the clinical judgment Walter talked about, we may use ultrasound or other devices to decide if they need additional boluses. And that's all we're doing in the first 24 hours on these patients is either nothing or a bolus under pressure to see the results instantly. And in the ED, in the eMERGE for the management of these patients, I think if you put them on a reasonable dose of norepi and they're doing well after those three to four liters, you could just let them
1: ride and they should be okay until they get to the ICU. Scott, in your experience, what's the reasonable dose in this situation?
2: Yeah, you you said it. You know, two, three, four, five, six. If I'm getting beyond 10, I'm now asking myself, do they need more fluid? Am I missing something? Is this all an inotropy issue? Do they need an augmentation of their actual squeeze? Is their calcium okay? Am I missing an endocrine cause? Are they really hypothyroid or uh, adrenally suppressed? I'm asking myself a bunch of questions to
1: try to figure out what's going on in these patients. Makes perfect sense to me. So the summary is two or three liters, not doing great, MAP is low. Clinically, the person's a problem. That's when you start your norepinephrine, no later than that, that's an ideal time. We're
2: moving to much earlier administration. I would start them off peripherally, just like you said, Walter,
0: and I would temporize the patient with it, and then I'd get a central line after they stabilized. Okay, you had mentioned the process and ARISE trial, how things have changed since the Manny Rivers, early goal-directed therapy. Can you just give us the lowdown on what these trials show us and what we should be practically doing in the emergency department?
2: What's your take? I thought it was ready for prime time at the point of process. Uh, Most of the people in the States didn't agree. They were waiting for Arise to come out. Arise showed the same thing, and it's what we suspected for a while. What gives you the mortality benefit in severe sepsis is caring about your patient. In both of these trials, they all got super early appropriate antibiotics. That's a stop point. If you're not doing that, forget it. Your patients aren't gonna do well. So that's a given. Past that, you need a reasonable amount of fluid vasopressors, if the patient requires them, you need not to kill them during intubation and you need to admit them to a monitored setting where someone will continue to watch them and not let them decompensate without being uh, recognized as quickly as possible. If you do all that, I don't think there's any additional benefit that's going to be seen in these large trials to all the other accoutrements like CVP, SCVO2, advanced hemodynamic monitors.
0: So for those of you who aren't familiar with the ARISE trial, this was a prospective randomized control study at multiple centers with 1,600 patients that examined the benefit of protocolized early goal-directed therapy, which included monitoring the CVP, the central venous pressure, and the SCVO2, the central venous oxygenation saturation, versus usual care. And this was in patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. They found that there was no difference in mortality between usual care and treatment with early goal-directed therapy bundles. The mortality was 19% in both usual care and early goal-directed therapy arm at 90 days. So the bottom line is that it showed that monitoring central venous pressure and central venous oxygen saturation was of no added benefit.
1: Just two things. You don't have to measure the CVP because it's not that useful. And you don't have to measure central venous O2 sat, but you have to do everything else. Recognize sepsis early, give fluids early, treat the patient aggressively early, give ketocolamines when appropriate after two or three liters, and give antibiotics early, early, early. If you've done that, and you're doing a good clinical assessment, and you're committed, and you're watching the patients, there is very little additional benefit probably none, measuring a CVP and measuring a CVO2. On October the 1st, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign released a two-page summary discussing the ARISE trial and the PROCESS trial, and I was absolutely knocked off my feet where they actually stated they are going to consider changing their protocols. But they emphasized two things. The original protocols worked fine. They certainly weren't harmful. And number two, the preliminary bundle, recognition, an initial lactate, lots of fluids, appropriate catecholamines is essential. If you've been doing that, you've been doing a great job all along. And in fact, the truth of it is in many communities, we've been following the process trial and we've been following the ARISE trial suggestions for the last 10 years.
0: And now into the second part of this podcast we're going to be talking about post intubation analgesia and sedation. So we're going to keep on going now with the same patient, our 72-year-old gentleman who has now been saved by DSI, who's been given appropriate initial fluid management and you've been called away to see another patient. And the nurse pages you to tell you that the patient's now pulling at his ET tube and needs sedation. Now, my simple understanding is basically that if we under-sedate and under-analgeses critically ill patients, it's bad. And if we over-sedate and over these patients, it's also bad. Dr. Weingart, why is it so important to provide just the right amount of sedation and analgesia in the intubated patient?
2: Yeah, My paradigm on this has shifted as we get more and more evidence of the fact that early management makes a difference it used to be i would say okay they're not doing a great job on pain and agitation in the ed but i'll fix them upstairs in the icu because really those first few hours don't matter so much and if the patient's a little bit uncomfortable it's very sad and i feel bad for that patient but i don't want to you know come down on these ed guys for not doing perfect sedation because they're busy and they have a ton of other stuff going on there's been a couple trials now showing those first few hours of care post-intubation, the time in the emerge, may very well play a role on the patient's final outcome. And the reason is a disease state called delirium. Delirium is really bad. Delirium is associated with mortality in the ICU. If the patient becomes delirious, they have a much greater chance of dying or not getting out neurologically intact than a patient who never became delirious during their ICU course. And it seems more and more evidence is accumulating that the sedation and pain regimen you use in the eMERGE is what will help or hinder the development of delirium in these patients.
0: I love how you said eMERGE. Very Canadian. You're adapting very Eh? nicely. (laughs) Pass the Tims. All right. So, Dr. Weingart, how do you know exactly how much is the right amount? What kind of measurements are you using? The protocols out there now from the critical care societies call
2: this regimen PAD. P-A-D, and that's the order you go in. Pain, then agitation, then delirium. So the first thing you treat is pain. Up front, these patients need potent analgesics to make up for the fact that they have a large plastic object shoved in the back of their throat. If you want to understand what these patients are going through, just take two of your fingers and jam them in the back of your throat. And then you will understand that, first of all, this is miserable. And second of all, giving doses of midazolam or Ativan don't change the fact that it's miserable. If you give enough of them, eventually the patients will stop complaining. But they are still going through a catechol storm. They are still activating all their pain receptors, and they are still now prone to delirium. Your first goal after intubation is to eliminate the pain and suffering of that et tube and all the things we do to these patients if you adequately analges them they may need no sedation agents whatsoever in order to be perfectly comfortable and remain responsive to you and able to answer questions they can't talk obviously but they could actually indicate with their eyes or their hands or they could write on a piece of paper you will have patients on high levels of ventilatory management of respiratory support on an adequate dose of a fentanyl drip or a hydromorphone drip who are totally communicative, totally happy, are willing to sleep when you're not there and willing to communicate with you
1: when you are. That should be what you're shooting for. It makes perfect sense. So I think rather than having a set formula where you give 50 mics of fentanyl and two milligrams of versed, and you repeat that every half hour to an hour, go with the pain first. You start with fentanyl. And 50 mics may not be enough in the first hour, 100 mics might not be enough. You may have to go up to 200 mics and possibly more. You want pain control first. The point of it is, someone who's in pain isn't much better off than someone who's groggy and in pain. You want the pain to be significantly reduced. As a consequence of that, the amount of sedation you'll require is significantly less.
2: Walter's put his finger on it. That's just it. If you get their pain controlled, now you can assess, do you want to sedate your patient or not? And you don't need to, but it's nice to do because the ED is a miserable, cacophonous environment. And it would be nice if they didn't have to be fully aware. If you could just take a little bit of the edge off. And that's where your sedative agents come into play. Now, there's been a shift away from benzodiazepine sedation, and we're not sure, but we're starting to think that the patients will get off the vent sooner and avoid delirium with more alacrity if you use other agents such as propofol or dexmedetomidine or potentially, I hope, ketamine. But all of that only comes into play after you've ensured adequate analgesia. And then if you think your patient's agitation is due to delirium, then you could add in your antipsychotic agents. But I don't really see very many patients who didn't come in psychotic in the first place needing that in the eMERGE
1: management. It's really later on in the ICU where delirium becomes a player. So Scott, I've got a question. If you've got a patient who's flailing and you're afraid they're gonna rip out every IV and rip out endotracheal tube and just going insane, how much fentanyl do you give?
2: Yeah, so on those patients who you need immediate control, what you might want to grab is the ketamine. That will immediately control the patient, prevent them from ripping out their ET tube and give potent analgesia. Now, can you get away with getting the fentanyl in? Sure, and I would give a big slug. I give 100 mics, wait a couple minutes, give 100 mics, but that might not be quick enough and that patient may still be finding you. So I just have no problem whatsoever ripping out the
1: vitamin K from the med cart and pushing that instead. I agree totally. I've had a patient with uh, esophageal varices massive bleeding, a GI guy didn't want to come in, he had a Linton tube in his place, he was intubated, he was shocky, he was going crazy. I gave him ketamine, with a bit of a battle on my hands with the internus that night, 0.5 milligram per kilogram, and about 50 to 100 of fentanyl. He was under control within approximately a minute and a half. It was quite beautiful to see. I'd like to talk a little bit more
0: about the benzodiazepines, because... Traditionally, what we've used is fentanyl and Versed. Can you just nail down exactly why aren't benzos necessarily your first choice for sedation?
2: And I will say none of this is definitive. And so if you're in an eMERGE where this is still your protocol and this is what you're comfortable with and you want to keep using it, if you went with that analgesia first technique and got their pain under control and then added in some benzos just to take the edge off, I got no problem with that. But what the evidence is starting to show is that patients who get benzodiazepines stay on the vent longer and it's because these drugs accumulate and probably because people are using them in lieu of proper analgesia but the shorter acting agents like propofol that when you turn off even in a patient who's sick will wear off within a reasonable amount of time get intubated sooner so do i think that the amount of problem from midazolam being used for four hours in the emerge is really going to affect the patient's course if They had adequate analgesia and you were just giving a little bit to get some amnesia and maybe a little sleepiness? No, I don't think so. But if you're going with the standard emergency paradigm of Ativan, 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 VEC, I think those patients will do much worse. If you're going with just midazolam and no pain meds, I think those patients will do worse. If you had to give only sedatives and no pain control, I do think propofol leads to a better patient circumstance than just benzos alone. And that may be where some of the benefit comes from. But I think if you provide adequate analgesia and just a tiny bit of benzo, it's probably
1: okay. So we're talking doses of Versed, maybe a milligram or two milligrams, not the old five milligram doses every half hour. And this is quite possible if you have adequate analgesic control. And certainly, I think the move to propofol has uh, become increasingly strong. But we're not talking about 80 milligrams of propofol an hour. We're talking probably something like 30 mic per kilogram per minute, which is plenty. That's about 2 milligrams a minute. And that's a lot of propofol in someone who has good analgesia absolutely agree with Walter, and I would say
2: this. There's a barrier to propofol in some patients because they're right on the border of that blood pressure goal. You know, they have a map of 70, and everyone decides, oh, yeah, you know, normally I'd give propofol, but I don't want to because their blood pressure is low, so I'll give Midaz instead put them on norepi, just just bite the bullet and put them on a vasopressor and then you can give as much propofol as you want and I have no barrier whatsoever to a patient that was doing fine on their blood pressure and then I put them on the propofol and their blood pressure drops to a map of 50 and the nurse is like, we're gonna shut off the propofol and I tell them, no, don't shut off the propofol, put them on a norepi drip and just, you've taken away all the vasodilatory properties of propofol by that and the patient will do better as a result.
0: Okay, so if you've got a ballistic patient, first go to ketamine. For all patients, the key is to get their pain under control first and then sedate. Fentanyl is probably the best drug to do that. Once you've given the fentanyl, you want to sedate. Benzos, if you are going to use them, use them at low doses, one or two milligrams an hour. If you see yourself needing to go to higher doses, then abandon the benzodiazepines because it has been shown to prolong vent time and increase delirium then in Canada, really your only choice then is propofol. And I think that's a great point, Dr. Weingart, that if you see the patient's blood pressure dropping with the propofol, that's not the time to turn off the propofol and let the patient be unsedated. That's the time when you want to start thinking about adding norepinephrine if you haven't already or turning it up if you have. Dr. Weingart, for our American listeners... I know that there's another medication that's that's being used now that's shown to cause less problems later on down the road in the i c u with delirium and lower lengths of stay. Can you just tell us a little bit about that medication? Maybe it'll be coming to Canada soon. And what your take is on it. Sure.
2: So dexmedetomidine uh, really hasn't taken much foothold in EDs either because most of the pharmacy committees think it's too expensive for eMERGE use, and it's really only been in the ICUs. But this agent is similar to clonidine. It's virtually the same, except they've managed to keep the sedating properties of clonidine and eliminate most of the blood pressure reduction of the drug. So it essentially gives you a dissociated state. You have a patient who will continue to spontaneously breathe, who will be rousable, be communicative, but when you leave them alone, they essentially fall into what looks like sleep. And now the real beauty of dexmedetomidine, and the reason we like it so much in the ICU is first of all, we could get a neuro exam on these patients. But second of all, it looks like sleep and it turns out it probably is close to sleep. And a major contributor to delirium in these ICU patients is they can't sleep. That even though the benzos or even the propofol makes them look like they're in a sleep-like state, they're not getting all the restful aspects of sleep. And dexmedetomidine seems to promote normal, healthy sleep architecture. And I take money from none of these drug companies. But that's one of the reasons it becomes such a hot drug for ICU sedation. But it was the single largest drug expense at the shock trauma center for pharmaceutical usage. And so it really is not possible to use in the eMERGE setting until it becomes generic. And that might be
0: why the smart Canadians have
2: not opted to
0: start using it regularly. Okay, and you had mentioned about antipsychotics that you rarely need to go to antipsychotics. Can you just back up a bit and tell us what is the downside of, say, giving a big whack of Haldol for someone that's going ballistic? If they weren't ballistic before you intubated them, they didn't
2: suddenly become psychotic as a result of interaction with plastic in their oropharynx. And yet, a lot of my colleagues treat them as if somehow they had a psychotic break as a result of the intubation. The reason they're acting psychotic is they are miserable, and there's one of two reasons. Either they're in severe pain from the endotracheal tube, or they are being left hypercapnic and can't get enough air in. And there's no physiologic motivator of distress greater than hypercapnia. So, you are screwing them in one of two ways, either by causing pain or not letting them breathe enough. Opioids will fix both of those circumstances. If you give adequate pain meds, you should have a patient that is lying comfortably in bed. And then you can decide whether you want to give sedation or not. And only at that point, when you've exhausted both of those things, should you consider an antipsychotic. In the eMERGE, that will not happen very often, where you've exhausted your pain and sedation regimens and now need an antipsychotic agent.
1: Absolutely. The treatment of urinary retention Is not IV morphine. And a treatment of delirium secondary to pain and suffering hypoxia is not an antipsychotic. And furthermore, as we know, the antipsychotics can widen the QRS complex. They can widen the QET interval. They may have unpredictable effects on blood pressure. Uh, They're pharmacologically a messy drug to use in this context, and they do not treat the problem. I, I couldn't agree more that patients don't suddenly become psychotic because they're septic. They may appear psychotic, but that's not their real problem. So we're going to wrap up
0: this podcast by doing a little bonus on push-dose pressors. Now, it's important to know that currently there aren't any good studies showing the benefit of push-dose pressors in the emergency department. However, the anesthesiology literature does support the use of them in the operating room. So most of this anesthesiology literature examines push-dose pressors to reverse or prevent transient and recurrent hypotension induced by spinal anesthesia during C-sections. Literature generally shows excellent response in patients with regards to improvement in blood pressure and prevention of hypotension when used prophylactically. Now let's think about some of the potential indications for using epinephrine as a push-dose pressor in the emergency department. So first, We've all been in that situation where we intubate someone and then immediately their pressure dives. So in this situation of a normotensive patient who suddenly gets hypotensive post-intubation, you can restore normotension while giving your fluid bolus. A second indication might be in severe anaphylaxis. Thirdly, in post-procedural sedation, so in a hemodynamically unstable, drug-sensitive old patient who dumps their pressure after giving propofol, for example, then a push-dose epinephrine might bridge them until you can do something more definitive. And then finally, the patient with sepsis who comes crashing in with a map below 65 who you're getting those peripheral IVs in, you're starting fluid boluses under pressure bags, but they're really about to crash, and you want to get something in there while your nurse is getting the norepinephrine, you can give push-dose epinephrine in that situation as well. Now, there has been some criticism on push-dose pressors by people like Amalek Matu, for example, who's criticized them, saying that they shouldn't be used as a substitute for critical thought in the crashing peri patient, and that we shouldn't be treating the blood pressure numbers just to make ourselves feel better. So let's hear what Dr. Weingart has to say about push-dose pressers in the
2: ED. What you are doing is essentially giving the exact same medication you would as a drip of that medication, whether it be phenylephrine or epinephrine. You're not doing anything magical. You're not doing anything out there. It's not even that cutting edge. You're just changing the way it's administered to something you could control as opposed to having to wait for the eMERGE or ICU nurse to mix up a drip. Push-dose epinephrine gives the same amount of epinephrine as they would get with an epinephrine drip and yet you could save a life in circumstances where the drip's going to take too long to mix we've moved away from push dose phenylephrine for the most part because we didn't want to have two agents and push dose epi works in every circumstance so that's what i recommend you take a cardiac ampule of epinephrine one to ten thousand and into nine cc's of saline you put one cc of that epinephrine and you shake And now you could give one, two, maybe even three cc's every minute or two until the patient's blood pressure is where you want. And now you have all the time in the world to figure out why they were hypotensive, to figure out how you're going to fix it and mix up any drips necessary to continue to sustain the patient.
0: Well, thank you very much, both of you. What a pleasure, man. It was was all mine. Absolutely. (laughs) It was great. And this month's quote of the month is from Thomas Edison. If we did all the things we're capable of, we would literally astound ourselves. Just one more announcement before we go. The EM Cases team has been working diligently with a designer on a huge project called EM Cases Digest. What is EM Cases Digest, you ask? Well, it's a new book series. Kinda. Actually, it's more like a series of e-magazines we plan on releasing eight e-magazines representing the eight pillars of emergency medicine. The first one is going to be on trauma and MSK, which will take all the best stuff from all the EM Cases episodes on trauma and MSK and present them in a beautiful user-friendly e-magazine where you can work through cases and Q&As and design your own learning journey with links to videos, images, podcasts, and other educational resources. And the best part of it is, that they're all free. All you need to do is sign up at the EM Case's website and it'll take you to a page where you can download the e-magazine. I want to sincerely thank Taryn Lloyd, Michael Meesh, and Niran Argentaru for their amazing work they've done putting together the EM Case's Digest series. I really hope you enjoy them. So until next time, take it easy.